0: In this podcast, we're talking to Tim Boson about the subject of anthropology. Hello, Tim. Hi, Nick.
1: Nice to be with you.
0: It's lovely to have you here. Now, um, tell us a bit about what, why, why your interest in anthropology.
1: That's a good question. I started off uh, really as a historian. And uh, my particular area was Byzantine history. <laughs> <laughs> I even at one stage was... Uh, looking after a set of Byzantine coins. But I've always been interested in human behavior and how that affects history. And so I started uh, studying at London School of Economics, anthropology, and went on from there. And so I've ended up now semi-retired as a professor of anthropology and history. Not many of us. Ah, okay. Really, very, very rare, are you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> pretty I rare. Liked, I like to think so. Not yes. an endangered species, perhaps, <laughs> though. So, so what is anthropology? Right, anthropology, like a lot of these ologies. Of course, it's the, the name is constructed from Greek. So, anthropos, in Greek, means humankind, and ology, would people will be familiar with, is the study of. So, it's very broad. It's the study of humankind. Well that is broad. (laughs) broad. Essentially there's sort of two types. Um, In fact there are many types of anthropology now as you know as specialists but in in substance there's really two types. There's physical anthropology and that is the study of human beings as they evolved and that brings into uh, study of fossils, paleontology, archaeology, Mm -hmm. anatomy and so on. And then there's social anthropology and social anthropology looks at societies and also at their cultures. So it tries to understand why we behave the way we do.
0: Wow, that's a tall order to understand why we behave the way we do. So do you, is your focus on one or other of those branches?
1: Well, um, that's a good question. I'm, I do try and move over the two because of course they're interla- uh, interrelated. You know, our, our bodies and the shape of our bodies and how we we behave. For example, they're walking on two legs and and uh, being able to use our arms, being bi- bipedal, as it would be say, That influences our behavior, mm. enables us to make stu- uh, tools. So we've made originally stone tools, and then of course we moved into metal ages. And that technology then has shaped our world. I mean, the present day is all about technology. Here we are, yes. in front of a batch of technology.
0: Yes, we are, and uh, and I suppose that technology arguably is also shaping the way we behave. It- it may not be the technology itself that's actively doing that, but our using it is starting to shape the way we Absolutely. behave. Absolutely.
1: If we took one, one little example, uh, and we will go back to the physical anthropology in a minute, but if we take one example of uh, social media. Mm. Now, there's a huge increase in people's anxiety, particularly amongst children, which is very much worrying the authorities. Some of that anxiety undoubtedly can be put down to how social media operates. So the technology has influenced people's psychology and their attitude and how society operates. So we're, we're constantly, if you like, in a dialogue uh, about being human beings and what that means and the world that we've created, particularly through technology.
0: And then, of course, who knows what happens as we get into artificial intelligence and how that might shape how we are.
1: Uh, But let's
0: not go there just yet. So let's think first of all about how, as we are today, rather than looking forward into the future, what are the big things that have shaped the way we
1: behave today, do you think? Well, I think that's interesting. If you look at humankind's progression, and people are always thinking, you know, ever since Charles Darwin wrote Origin of Species, are we, what are we as a primate? How have we become this? dominant species, Homo sapiens sapiens, that in a sense has created what some people call the anthropocentric uh, era, the era of humankind, because we, pollution, climate change, all of those things have been done by us. Mm. So we've had a, a huge influence, whereas in the past, one might say it would be the geology that has created the world we live in. What people have often wanted is to understand is how we've evolved, as Darwin recognised, from a primate to a great ape to the species we are now. And that evolutionary process also can account for some of our behavior. Because if you think about our behavior, and this is the social anthropology aspect, of course, our culture and our society is incredibly important. And we learn not just from our parents, but from our peers, from around us. And our behavior is controlled, shaped, and organized by that environment. Well, on the other hand, of course, uh, we have evolved as a species originally from being a primate, the great apes, along with gorillas, orangutans, chimpanzees and us. And that period, we can see over millions of years. Hmm. And if you look at the historical period in which cultures are shaped, that's absolutely tiny. We might say 5,000 years at the most where we see cultures shaping. So... There is this view, and it goes under the label of evolutionary psychology, that a lot of our behavior is actually been formed while we were evolving over these 2.5 million years. Now, really? a, a very good example of this would be some things we can't really explain. Now, something that would happen automatically, it's linked to our emotions, but we can't control it, blushing. Why do we blush? Oh, yes, yeah, good question. Something you just don't think about, really. And, of course, we blush. We send out a signal. And the signal is something that we can't do anything about physically, but emotionally we might be embarrassed, we might be angry, we might be upset. And we are sending a signal to another human being. This is our state of mind. Um, we're not comfortable. Now, why would that... What, are there, is
0: there any theory as to w- what that came from?
1: Well, yes. I mean, there are various theories. And one of the problems with uh, evolutionary psychology is we have a lot of theories, but they're very difficult to test. Yeah. But it's built on the premise that our mental state and our psychology was developed for a different environment, the environment where we were very vulnerable. And you've probably heard about this mechanism, the flight yes. or fight mechanism. Yeah. And that mechanism is linked to the fundamentals of any species. The fundamentals of any species are survival, and reproduction. Yeah, that's what species are about. And some of it is completely unconscious. And there is this interesting balance between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind. And some things we do which are linked, uh, evolutionary psychologists would say, to the past, that Stone Age mentality, if you like, carry on into modern day life. Let me give you an example which I often use with my students because it's such an obvious one. And interestingly, it was in the news. And that is called, well, it's it's road rage, basically. Mm-hmm. Our road rage, uh, there was a recent report only published last month by the RAC saying road rage has gone up. More incidents have been reported. And road rage is a totally irrational thing to do. You're driving along in your car, someone cuts you up. Now, rationally, what you should be thinking is, that person isn't a very safe driver. They've done something rather dangerous. So, I'm just going to back away and keep cool. What actually happens is, and particularly with men, because they have hormones, testosterone being Mm -hmm. the one that we know of, which drives them to be quite aggressive, they wave their fists, they hoot their horns, they even get into dangerous situations, chase, and I'm afraid these days there are many reports of physical abuse going on. And that is completely irrational. So, why is it there? What's happening? Why is it there? Because in our past, survival and sexual reproduction was about competition. Mm-hmm. And therefore, mm-hmm. we are fighting. Uh, if the competition is too great, we're fleeing and yeah. get away from our predators. Yeah. So that fight and fight mechanism isn't a conscious process. It happens automatically. And I've seen it for myself. You know, Someone does something silly on the road, and my immediate reaction is to swear at them and get annoyed. Yes. Which, yeah, yeah. as I say, is not actually rational.
0: It doesn't achieve anything, actually, does it? Um, so, so if we're sort of, how do we get away from that then? Because you know, it's it, it's true that um, now we try to find all sorts of ways of limiting the stress in our lives and you know, dealing with confrontational situations and so on. But we're basically programmed not to do that, aren't we? <laughs> so, so how does how does that leave us? How can we be in control? when actually probably chemicals in our body and so on are in control. Well, there's,
1: a, there's an interesting relationship, isn't there? And it, this is what's called the nature-nurture argument. And the nature argument is that we inherit these behavioural patterns through our genes. And you probably, well, you're of course too young to know this, but back in 1976... I'm not too young <laughs> to know that. Um, uh, uh, a biologist called Richard Dawkins published a book, called the selfish gene. And the selfish gene became iconic, in a way, because it spelt out the fact that we were not in control of our behaviors. And genetics was developing, uh, D- DNA was being developed, so we were beginning to understand what was inheritable and what was passed on, and identifying particular genes for particular bits of behavior. One of the most interesting ones now, actually, is as a species, we're quite unique in many ways. Um, and. Perhaps that's for another session when we go through that. But one of the things that, of course, we're doing is what we're doing now, which no other species can do. We're talking. We have mm. language. Mm. And they've been able to identify a gene which links to language. So that gene enables us, as infants, to be able to understand and go into language and learn language in a way that you can't do with writing. There isn't a gene for writing. You yes. have to practice and work at that.
0: It's interesting. I was talking to somebody just a couple of weeks ago about learning a foreign language. And the way most people learn a foreign language, at least once they're past childhood, is they're taught it. But actually, we seem to have an ability to learn a language anyway before we're taught, yes, OK, a little bit of help and so on and, you know, parents correcting you a bit. But fundamentally, you're learning it by, well, we don't know if we're learning it, actually, do we? But we're, we're learning it by observing, I guess, you know, in, certainly in my school time English wasn't taught in that kind of strict grammar way here's a verb here's a noun this is the past participle all that kind of stuff and but so when it came to learning French of course and you were told these things it was like a, it was literally like a foreign language but in English and so somehow you've learned well when you say the past of something you say it this way so that's quite fascinating that we have that ability to just comprehend by sort of osmosis comprehend that kind of thing
1: yes and it's probably part of the survival mechanism because children have all sorts of mechanisms because they're so vulnerable and again we're unique as a species there's no other mammal that has their offspring so helpless for so long and there is a reason why and i'll come on to the reason why our our, our offspring are so helpless oh i see what but you
0: mean if a foal is born that it gets up more or less straight away and Gallops across the field kind of Yes, thing.
1: they can do it in sort of eight to ten minutes. Never thought so if they don't, that. someone's going to eat them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, yeah, there is a reason for that. Isn't yes. There? And let's go, let's go back then to evolution. We'll go yeah. back into uh, our development as a species. If we are seeing ourselves as one of the apes, we are, of course, living in trees. We're using all fours. Something happened. And again, we think it may be environmental. We may have moved to the savannah or whatever. Something happened that made us bipedal. Mm-hmm. So we can stand on two legs. And that has huge consequences all around uh, because it enables us to use our hands and develop things that no other species has. For example, you look at your thumb. That's yep. called an opposable, opposable thumb, thumb because yep. you can grasp something. Yep. Now, our cousins, orangutans, chimpanzee, gorillas, can't do that. Um, But we pay a price for walking on two legs. And the price is quite a a tricky one. And it's mainly to do for women with birth. Now, while we're also being bipedal, we're doing something else. We have the largest brains of the ape species in terms of ratio. Mm -hmm. So we've developed our brains, our heads. Now, that's fine unless you're trying to give birth. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And a bigger brain and a bigger head makes the birth canal really quite tricky. And yeah. it's, a baby's head, you may have noticed when they come out, is actually quite pushed in mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. has to settle because it's such an effort. Mm-hmm. And the way that, that our human pelvises have developed because of walking on two legs makes it very difficult to give birth. So and why are we giving birth through almost a premature child? Because uh, we are oh, programming okay. that. If you if you think of the brain as programming itself, we are programming. Now this goes back to language. We have the gene that enables us to program language. And so that's a unique facility. And it does link up to the way you were talking about language being taught. In fact, if you learn language when you're an infant and you learn several languages, your accent is perfect in all those languages. If you learn later in life, it's very difficult to get rid of yeah. the accent because it's a much more conscious process that you're going through, rather than a small child's unconscious program. Mm. A, a child doesn't say when they're uh, a toddler, "I'm going to learn a language."
0: No. And so, so perhaps we almost become too self-aware as we go on, and so we're not we're we're sort of trying to learn it properly when actually perhaps osmosis would be the better
1: way. Yes, and I suspect what's happened, and this again is purely a theory of speculation, that. In terms of timing, the timing bit which enables us to learn language through the particular gene, uh, it's a FOX gene, um, that timing is no longer so crucial. Because we've got some language, we're moving on to something else. And we're learning a lot of other things for survival's sake. Mm. And I, I use the analogy. If you think of the brain as like a computer, there's input and there's output. And that input is in certain sections of development. In theory, A child could survive after the age of seven, which actually, when you think about it, gives a new meaning to the seven-year itch.
0: Oh, okay. So in theory, a child could survive on its own after seven years.
1: And they do, actually, in Mexico City, I'm afraid. Rather sadly. But the point of that is we're unique, again, as uh, a great ape species. We pair bond. And pair bonding has had all sorts of consequences. But pair bonding is vital for the survival of the infant. Because yeah. the infant is so helpless for so long. If it's, uh, of course, we have lots of single parents now because there's all sorts of help that you can call upon. But if you go back and you think mm. about a Stone Age parent, <laughs> yeah. then that's a much more difficult prospect. How is that infant going to survive if the mother's not able to go out and hunt or gather food or whatever's necessary for the survival? So pair bonding then creates a family unit which makes the survival of the infant much greater.
0: Interesting. Now, so there's a theory as well, isn't there, that progress um, from sort of um, enclosing animals and agriculture starting until today hasn't been progress at all. I've read that before, and you can sort of see the attraction of that as a theory right now, because some of the things that happen literally on a day-to-day yes. basis that are supposed to be progress don't look much like it. Uh, but I guess that's that's probably always been the case. But there is this kind of theory, isn't there, that 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 we you know we thought well oh, that's a good idea. If we keep the animals closer, we can we can kill them and eat them quite easily, as opposed to going out every day and hunting. That's a great idea. But what that all that did was basically then drove up the birth rate because you weren't dragging kids around with all over the place so you could have more because it wasn't impractical any longer and so we needed more animals enclosed and so on and so on is that is that is that related to that kind of um development that we've we've gone through that that basically as we as we've gained i guess more reasoning more capabilities and thought about stuff a bit more
1: We've designed some things that seem like a good idea, but they may not be in the end. Well, in the end, it's, but, but that is, that's about cultural anthropology, and it is, it is the crux. I mean, roundabout, uh, and you can vary this, but between seven and 5,000 years ago, we, we learnt agriculture. It was the Neolithic period, and they actually called it the Neolithic Revolution when they first were studying this, because what happened was, yes, husbandry came in, we cultivated. Some very important consequences came from that, and one of them was, we think, that early cultivation took place in what is now around Syria and Israel and that area, the so-called Fertile Crescent, which ran down into Egypt. To cultivate, you needed irrigation. To create irrigation, you needed people to work together. So what started to emerge was cooperation and societies evolving and specialists evolving within those societies. So you had people who made pots, and then, of course, once we get to the metal age, people who make metal, people who do things. You get people who control the religion and come on to religion another time. So you get specialized society. You get the development of civilization and culture. And yes, that's driven us. And there are some interesting consequences now. We're all worried about physical things like obesity and overeating of sugar, which is leading to diabetes type 2 and so on. Some of that is probably a consequence of the Neolithic Revolution because our diet has changed. We've become, obviously, a lot more sedentary. But we still like certain things which we must have loved as uh, hunter-gatherers. Uh, hunter-gatherers, and there are still some communities that are hunter-gatherers. We can observe them, particularly in East Africa. And, for example, uh, something sweet, like honey, from a, is a real treat. Mm. And it gives you lots of energy very quickly. Yep. But it's available to us all the time. And because they think our taste buds are have formulated to like it so much it's very difficult for us to stop eating and I know this myself yeah. <laughs> put a chocolate bar in front of me and that bar disappears
0: and is that because sugar was a source of energy and sometimes you needed that source of energy if you'd not had any other foods for some time because hunting had been difficult or whatever and, yes. and so it was a yeah. way of surviving and so people with with those kind of taste buds that like that kind of thing were more likely to survive than people who didn't realize that they could have the honey or whatever.
1: That's right, and there are other other sort of consequences. Interestingly enough, in the news, I think it was just yesterday, they were doing a survey of the tallest people in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the tallest nations, if not the tallest, is Holland. Dutch people are very tall. Why? What's in their diet? Well, they eat a lot of cheese. They eat a lot of dairy products. And it's absolutely true. Once you move on to dairy products, you see growth. Japanese society, for example, before the Second World War had virtually no dairy products at all. After the war, with the Americans being there and so on, their diet has changed. The Japanese are growing round about five centimeters every ten years.
0: Right, and and so actually, some of these things can happen quite quickly compared to the sort of evolutionary periods we, you know, that that the. the, the, the where where we started, these kind of things. Is it, is it true that in a funny sort of way evolution is accelerating, or can that not happen? Is that just a nonsense Well, it's concept? very
1: interesting. I mean, when Darwin postulated this theory, he was thinking of it as a gradual gradation. Um, one of his main followers, actually, Thomas Huxley, didn't totally agree with that, because there seemed to be spurts of evolution in certain areas. Now, I came across something just a few months ago, which was astonishing, and it was just in the newspapers, and they had been looking at uh, African elephants in East Africa. Now, uh, we know that elephants are endangered species because of poachers taking their ivory. They discovered that there were more elephant births now of elephants without tusks.
0: As How if it's does an that evolutionary
1: happen? response to you've got a better chance of survival if you haven't got a tusk.
0: But can we even explain... If that were true, can we explain the mechanism by which that occurs? Because, it, it, by definition, there's no... I mean, you know, I, I, mm. Well, it goes back to... Well, unless, of course, the hunters are selecting the ones with the biggest tusks, in which case the ones with the smaller tusks or no tusks are getting left. You've got, you've got that. That's ah, how it works. And, and, it's and, fascinating. And Dawkins
1: would say, you see, in the Selfish Gene, that this isn't anything conscious. Survival of the fittest, as it was put forward uh, by, uh, I think, it was Spencer. Spencer was, an, again, another follower of Darwin's right. but it's, it's natural selection, but natural selection. What is fittest isn't always what we would think is rational. In other mm. words, the elephants that are breeding more and being more successful because they're not being shot and having their tusks are the ones without tusks, so that gene has a greater chance of survival. Right. And so what happens is you create. And so one of the things that we we know about nature, which is puzzling and quite tricky, but because our genetic makeup, our DNA, has all sorts of flaws in it, all sorts of problems, we can pass those genes on, and we know that there are difficulties with particular illnesses. I mean, most people know about the uh, Angelina Jolly problem, yeah. Yeah. that there was a history of breast cancer yep. all the way through and therefore, she decided to take drastic action. Now, we do know that even if you've got a defective gene that could cause a problem, it is not necessarily the case that you are going to have that illness or disease. No. It's what, what's described as a predisposition. But of course, those genes get passed on. Now, the important thing in genetics is to create variety to avoid any, or we might just classify as bad <laughs> genes, being repeated. So it's important, for example, in terms of, uh, of mating, to broaden your genetic spectrum as much as possible. And we know that, you know, as anthropologists, we know every society that we've ever looked at have had a taboo against incest. Mm. There are some really weird little exceptions, but they're not really about the general public. For example, Egyptian pharaohs, Would marry their sisters um, and so on because they were gods and they wanted to keep it in house.
0: Yes, (laughs) Um, and and is that so? So the genetic reason for that is because you're basically mixing. You're not mixing up the gene pool. You're basically reproducing more or less the same genes, and they are going to have flaws in them. They might be the most brilliant genes, but even so, they're going to have flaws in them, and they're going to get amplified over time. That's
1: right. There's snips in your DNA, and what you want to do is actually avoid repeating those, otherwise. And so you know the, 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 the stereotype is the. Village idiot, because there's too much inbreeding in the village um, because they're not getting out and about. And they're very interesting stories. And one of, well, he's often called the father of of history, is a man called Herodotus, who I remember (laughs) studying at school. Um, And uh, he's Greek and he's looking at societies. He's he's quite an anthropologist as much as a historian. He tells the story of uh, villages in what is now modern Turkey, or Anatolia, which is, and they're very isolated. And so when the stranger comes, the stranger's first duty is to sleep with the top virgin in the village. Right. That's his job. Huh. It's, I've well, heard of it, worse it, ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but that, that's quite
0: interesting in itself, because somehow society, culture has worked out, without really understanding it, that that's what you have to do. How, how
1: can that happen? That is the mystery, isn't it? And there's various things where we seem to know what to do, but we don't know how we got there. Um, it's it's very strange, and religion is another interesting example. Every every society we've looked at, um, as anthropologists, they all have some belief system in a divine, mm. and it's an explanation, isn't it? As uh, us poor human beings, arbitrary things happen. Who's you know who's in control? We're not, but we hate that, so we find someone who is in control, and well, it's and it's, a, a it, divinity.
0: It's also true that that isn't it that actually single. Um, entity religions are quite modern, so the idea of multiple gods and so on is is much more how things had been until relatively recently
1: well yes I was straying slightly away, but it is yes. interest, it's a well this a piece of anthropology in a way with religion um, monotheism, yes, the monad idea, and I was uh, interestingly enough just talking to someone <laughs> to give you an idea of my conversations <laughs> but I was talking to someone about Saint Augustine now this isn't the Saint Augustine who converted uh, the people in England, not. St. Augustine of Kent, Canterbury but this is St. Augustine of a place called North Africa Hippo. but he was an architect of original sin and he had this real problem that he was dealing with a monotheistic religion where there was one God who was responsible for everything. Well is God responsible for the good things? Yes. Is God responsible for the bad things like evil? How can you have an omniscient omnipresent benign God who allows evil things. So for monotheistic religions, which you quite rightly say are qu- relatively new, that's quite a tricky one to see a God who allows evil into the world and terrible things to happen and, and so on. I've moved slightly away, but of course, religion is part of anthropology. It's a very big part of human behavior. Yes, and Ideology backing religion has, uh, has uh, underpinned so much of, of our culture, of our society. Uh, of the way we operate,
0: so is it possible then, Tim, that that we we're sort of accelerating evolution now in the the, the you know the the elephant tusk example, um, the idea that perhaps we will do things um, with technology that kind of makes certain types of people less valuable. If you want to put it in a true in a gene pool basis, no, I don't mean it makes them less valuable actually as people, but it, is it possible that our own development is accelerating evolution or is that just well
1: (laughs) this almost takes you back into the you know the terrible um arguments about eugenics and Mm. taking you back into the Mm. 20s and 30s where people actually thought just like you can breed a dog for certain uh attributes and this is what we've done with dogs and we've done it with horses and all sorts of animals and we're doing it with plants we we've created we have that power and Eugenics was the idea we could have some sort of master race, some superhero race by getting the people with the best genes and putting them together. But actually, it doesn't work like that. It, no. Well, and in any case, I think we accept it's morally not right. <laughs> well, right? morally but, not right. But,
0: but, but does it? Does it? Is it the case though that we we, we might inadvertently be um, doing things to evolution? Maybe just doing things to evolution of animals, perhaps. But 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 that seems hard to think that the elephant tusk example doesn't apply in some way to human beings, and we're doing some things to ourselves that mean that we're changing what's important, right? So what's in, what what was important um, a long time ago is not what's important today for survival, not all of it. Of course, you still need to be able to eat, and all that, but you don't need to be able to hunt. Um, so, so is it possible that we're sort of now, it's almost like you sort of accelerate towards where you are, if that makes
1: any sense. No, I understand what you're saying, and it's actually quite tricky, of course, because you're, it, the t- the time frames are not given. We haven't. No, we, we can't measure it, and as I say, it's quite difficult to understand what it would be like. And uh, we tend to write. I mean, people tend to write now dystopias of the future where they see something awful that has mm. happened, whether it's to do with robotics or it's to do with transplants or whatever it is, you know. And the cyborg is the image of us in the future, and. It, it's quite true, of course, we're learning now how to replace things, which is quite astonishing. Stem cells are enabling mm. us to do all sorts of things. So we we may well be tampering with natural selection in certain ways, but I suspect uh, over time it's not going to make a, a huge difference. What are the major problems we're faced with as, as human beings? Uh, at an individual level, we're still thinking about our survival. We're still thinking about reproduction and reproduction so dominant in our life in all sorts of ways. Um, And yes, we try and we try and modify it with ethics and morals and politics to control it, but it always sneaks out, you know. So what do people like watching the soaps for? Uh, It's a bit of vicarious uh, understanding of very basic human behavior, which is to reproduce. So Mm. (laughs) adultery and sex Mm. uh, are absolutely the forefront of people's thinking even though they know they have to moderate that to have uh, a civilized society where you're not having constant problems because sex does lead to reproduction, but it also leads to a whole sort of other elements. For example, jealousy, yeah. which can be, can be lethal yes. in certain cases. Yeah. So there are all those sort of things going on. But the, the evolutionary psychologists will will go back on that element of, of uh, anthropology saying that we still need to understand those what we might call basic bits of behavior to understand ourselves and in the end we as human beings no, our greatest concern isn't is ourselves
0: (laughs) yes and we 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 want to remain dominant as it were now what about artificial intelligence then because there are people who say that artificial intelligence will rule us one day um, or intelligence, actually, let's not call it artificial intelligence, but but things that are not human beings will rule us one day because they will be better, they'll be able to evolve much faster than we can, uh, and they will be better at doing a number of things, like everything, not everything, but a, a lot of what we do well today. What do you reckon?
1: It's fascinating. I mean, this is you know, the crystal ball, not yes. it? Yes. But of course, people have talked about this singularity, which is the element when. Uh, an artificial intelligence is intelligent enough to reproduce itself. Mm. And so then you have you know, you're into the fantasy world of the Terminator and so on mm. and so forth. Uh, at the moment, of course, any artificial intelligence is only as good as the programming. Yes. And so you know, this goes back to sort of as- Asimov's tenets about what you put into a I- into a, a robot. And one of the tenets is it must never harm a human being. <laughs> so yes. they are they're, they're, they're rules and controls. Well I, but are there. I mean if
0: you if you if you could conceive of um artificial intelligence that can actually write code that is effectively reproducing itself isn't yes. it?
1: Yes. And then you are then you've got a problem because you can't control that. Yeah.
0: And how right. are we going to stop that? here? <laughs> um, Maybe religion has a role to play here. Actually? In, Who in knows? What way were you thinking? Well, it's it, in a rules-based society perhaps having a common belief you know would would help Set rules for things like like how you allow artificial intelligence to be,
1: right? Yes, it, g- getting. I mean, this is this actually brings on to something very interesting because it's very contemporary at the moment, and it's about people's concerns about how society is going. And we see it in politics, you know, whether it's um, uh, it's Trump's USA or it's Erdogan's Turkey or it's Orbán's Hungary or whatever it is. What is people saying to me? You know, anthropologist, what's happening here? Because aren't we getting more global shouldn't we be more altruistic and working together and i come back with a, perhaps a rather reductive argument but it's a, it's quite important well in our early days what enabled us to work together was tribalism and actually what we're reverting to is a form of tribalism so tribalism has become dominant in our thinking and social media does that even more because people put on their social media outlets, the things they want to hear about, not the things they don't want to hear about. So their tribe is the people who have the same interests as them. And that it is a bit of is, an echo
0: chamber, isn't it?
1: <laughs> there is. And that's, that's sort of dangerous in that, in that way. So that is an added pressure into trying to understand how you can control and modify uh, anything. So going back to your question, I don't think human beings are, at this stage are capable of having a world order and it's like trying to contain something uh any new development in science and you say ethically that's wrong stop it someone somewhere else will go ahead with it um and mm. it's like it's it, like trying to put the lid on a kettle i i've seen this in politics and it's very tricky where you might say take um well let's take former yugoslavia a uh, uh, a socialist state run on pretty totalitarian basis but a whole group of different tribes. And once that state starts to erode, all the tribes go off. So whether it's Croatians, Serbians, Slovenes, Montenegrins, uh, hmm. Kosovones, whatever it is, they're, they've all become tribal. And we've got a bit of it now in the sense that this nationalist movements, whether it's Scotland, Wales, uh, maybe Cornwall next week, I don't know. But that's a form of tribalism which is almost a reaction to this world is too big, it's too out of control, I don't know what's going on. Oh, and by the way, someone over there is to blame. Not me, Mm. not my tribe, Mm -hmm. that other tribe. And if Mm. we can get away from that other tribe, we're in (laughs) Nevada.
0: And it is is perhaps where evolution-wise we've come from, and perhaps it's still there, that desire to be part of a tribe, identify... Well, you could argue that about many sports as well, couldn't you? Rugby, football, that kind of thing. You know, to be part of something where you you support something, you, you feel a common
1: bond is quite deeply ingrained in us. Isn't it, it? I think it's incredibly important, yes. And I'm, I'm a, a, a fervent supporter of, of sport for young people because uh, if you don't take account of those basic instincts of competition of survival if you don't, if you want a society where you can iron those out, actually what you do is say you suppress it and it comes out in other ways so sport for young men who are, you know, in terms of their reproductive processes the testosterone is growing as they're teenagers they want something, they need something they've got a lot of energy and a lot of aggression better they take it out on a football field or a rugby field or wherever it is than they go in a gang mm. and they're fighting other gangs and you we only have to look at the knife crime now and the gangs that are operating to realize how dangerous that can be for young people. Yeah. And, and we need to channel that energy and understand it and not reject it and not say it's not valuable. Because I've, I remember educationalists writing, we shouldn't have any competition, it's bad for people. Well, if you cut that out, you're, you're dealing with a basic instinct what you want to do is channel it and modify it, yes, because you don't want people being aggressive or attacking each other. But if you think you can suppress it, I think you're going down the wrong avenue. Interesting. And finally,
0: given what you know about how we evolve and how cultures evolve, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the very long-term future
1: for human beings? I'm an optimist. And we've solved so many problems, both at uh, individual level and uh, at uh, uh, wider levels, whether they're national levels and so on. We solve so many problems all the time. We're great problem solvers. It's one of the special things about being human. We take on problems and we take risks. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I'm optimistic about society. I don't think we're ever going to move to a paradise because we're not ever going to get to that point. And progress is a funny thing. You know, someone's progress isn't always uh, an even, straight process. Graph going up and up. There can be all sorts of dips and things that happen. But I'm confident that human beings, in the end, uh, because those mechanisms have served them so well, will come to a, a conclusion. What most people want now in their lives is to be happy and to have pleasure in their lives. And that's a, a sort of ethical point. But to get there, I think they do also have to understand who they are. And if they reject that, animal size and those basic instincts if they reject those and say they're not valuable then i think they're making a mistake and they won't actually get the happiness or pleasure that they want
0: it's sad that we just won't ever know how it turns out will we tim which you must find incredibly frustrating (laughs) as an anthropologist but uh, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast tim Boson. thank you for having me if you'd like to hear more podcasts, subscribe to Radio Verulam's podcasts at radioverulam.com. And if you'd like to support our podcasts, you can donate by going to radioverulam.com donate. Thank you.